0: We can turn to Luke 17 this morning. We're going to finish chapter 17. There's a line in one of uh, Hemingway's novels where one of the characters asked, how did you go bankrupt? And the other guy said, two ways, gradually, then all at once. You know, maybe you've heard it misquoted, where it's at first you go bankrupt slowly, then all at once. But the theme is the same. And this idea of something sort of happening slowly or something kind of happening behind the scenes, so to speak, and then a a sudden, more cataclysmic type event reminds me of Jesus' teaching on the kingdom. If we ask, as we've walked through the book of Luke, is the kingdom present or future, we might answer the question, yes. It's present in some way. Jesus has come and He said, the kingdom of God is in your midst. And yet it is future in another way. That is really then the structure of our passage this morning. I think we get both of these in our text. The first couple of verses deal with the kingdom's, what we might call the kingdom's inauguration in the first coming of Christ. And the second section, which is the majority of our text, deals with the consummation of the kingdom in the return of Christ. So let's look, look there at the first couple of verses. The kingdom inaugurated in the first coming of Christ. So, Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, He answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. So our text opens with, with a question that's being proposed to Jesus. And that question then drives the emphasis of the rest of our text. And the question is, when will the kingdom of God come? And before Jesus gets to his answer, it's it's worth pointing out that, that the originator of this question is the Pharisee. And as most of you, if you've been with us through the book of Luke, or you even grew up in church, you're probably tired of hearing about the Pharisees, you're sick of hearing that this group is, is opposed to Jesus, and they've been opposed to Him since the beginning of His public ministry, and the consternation towards Jesus has only grown and grown and grown as He has taught more and healed more, and He makes His way towards the cross. And the reason I bring that up is is that 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 means that it's not out of the question, and that this question is a question of defiance, not a genuine question. It probably is meant to be read something like this. You claim to be the Son of God, but where is all these signs of the kingdom? Where is the evidence of your coming kingdom? Remember what we even walk through around Christmas in Isaiah 9, that the government will rest upon the Messiah's shoulders. That's what Emmanuel's going to do. Or how about the other... Uh, Old Testament texts about a lion laying down with a lamb, or or a child playing over the hole of a snake and not being harmed. Where is the joy and the prosperity and the peace and the restoration and the spiritual vitality that is supposed to accompany the Messiah's arrival? Where is it? And not only that. On top of that, where are these cataclysmic signs that are supposed to accompany the arrival, the coming of? the Christ. What about something like Isaiah 13, 10? For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. Where are these sort of cataclysmic signs that are meant to accompany the arrival of Jesus? That is the question. What are these things that we've been promised? When the Messiah comes to establish the kingdom, these things are supposed to happen. Where are they? Notice then Jesus' answer in the second part of verse 20. The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Now Jesus, I don't don't believe, is saying there, there aren't things you can look at, specifically in Jesus, and say that the kingdom of God is in my midst. Jesus has been demonstrating over and over and over again His authority In the Gospels, he demonstrated his authority over sickness and disease by healing. He has demonstrated his authority over Satan and demons by casting them out. And remember, what Jesus said is like the authority of Satan is crumbling because Jesus has shown up and he is casting out these demons. We've seen his authority over death and that he raised people from the dead. And we've even seen his authority over sin by his pronunciation, that they have been forgiven of their transgressions. So I don't think Jesus is saying that there's nothing that you can see that would suggest that the kingdom is near. I think what he's he's trying to do is draw their eyes away from the cataclysmic, which they were expecting, and draw their eyes down towards Christ. You want to look up to the heavens for a sign, quit looking for a sign from the heavens and look at the sign right in front of you, the sign of Jesus Christ who is healing and casting out demons and forgiving sin and raising people from the dead. So he sets out to correct the Pharisees' perception that they should be trying to you know, read these celestial signs. And though we are definitely much different as, as an audience than the Pharisees. I think we too can learn from this that, that as we await, you know, we don't have the first coming of Christ right in front of us the way the Pharisees did. We live in the in-between, the first and second coming. I think we too, though, can learn that the goal is not to, to sort of try to discern the times in the sense of, well, I'm going to watch the news and see what's going on with China and what's going on with, with Russia, and then I'll, I'll put a calendar in front of me and I'll try to figure out all the the day or the hour you know that that sort of preaching uh, can sell a lot of books and it gets a lot of of hearers but i'm not sure it's biblical preaching our job is to be aware and to live in light of the fact that jesus could return at any at a moment's notice and so Jesus is trying to get their eyes off of the celestial signs onto Him. And so He tells them that the kingdom of God doesn't need to be hunted for because it's right there in front of them. It's, it's in the midst of them. In verse 21, He says, There will be no need to say, look, look, here it is, or, or, or maybe it's there. Why? Because He's standing right in front of them. This isn't a, a, a lost kingdom. You know, Percy Fawcett, an explorer, disappeared in the South American jungle looking for the lost city of Z. There is no, this isn't a lost kingdom, Jesus is saying. You don't have to peer around Jesus and say maybe it's hidden back there. It's in their midst. It's in front of them. And so if if they're waiting for the signs, they're missing Jesus who is right in their midst. They will miss Jesus. King Jesus right in front of them. And ironically, then they will be unprepared for the return of Christ. That is accompanied by cataclysmic signs from heaven. There is certainly enough evidence in Jesus' saying that that the kingdom has arrived in Jesus Christ, but it didn't come, at least initially, in this sort of world-dominating fashion they were expecting. And we've said that before as we walk through the Gospel of Luke, that, that uh, the Pharisees in particular, the, the religious folks there in Israel, they were expecting the arrival of a political ruler. and So they missed what Christ's mission was, what his goal was, and that he, he is the goal of all of history, not just coming to overthrow Roman rule for those Israelites living at that time. So, the arrival and the beginnings of this kingdom are different than expected. This is what's called the secret of the kingdom. That the arrival of the kingdom is not, uh, oh gosh, I'll get it, not associated with these cataclysmic signs. It was less pompous, we might say, than you or I would have planned it. Think about it. We've just come on the heels of Christmas. Jesus did not just appear out of heaven in a blaze of glory and announce that He is the King. Instead, He was miraculously conceived in the womb of a normal teenage girl in Israel. He was born in a manger in a nondescript town. His birth was announced to shepherds who weren't like top of the social tier in Israel. He was raised in in the dismissed town of Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? He had 12 faithful supporters. You know, in John 6, there's a lot of people that want to crown Him king. Hey, you fed us all bread. Let's make you king. And what does Jesus do? He dwindles the crowd down to 12. He's killed by the Roman government. He's got 120 faithful supporters supporters in a room praying after his resurrection and ascension. This is a different sort of arrival than we would have probably scripted if we were in charge. We've seen that this is is the beginning. How did you go bankrupt? Well, quietly, then all of a sudden, this is, how the, this is how it begins. It's seen in Jesus' miracles. It would be further realized in Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, and in the sending of the Holy Spirit, the establishment of the church, and the spread of the gospel to the nations. And So we can find, I think we can find hope and courage here. That the kingdom didn't arrive the way that we would have written it, but in some sense, and again, I'm not. we'll get to this future sense. In some sense, the kingdom has come in Jesus Christ. Jesus is raised and seated with God in the heavenly places. He has conquered sin and its consequences. The righteousness of Christ is available by faith. The power of this king is mediated to his people through the gift of the Holy Spirit. The king's joy is shared by his people. And we share in his defeat over Satan and his wicked angels in our union with Christ as we wield the sword of the spirits. So in in a sense, God's reign is breaking into creation when when Christ arrives. And it's it's clear in the ministry of Jesus, again, in his healing and his casting out of demons and his forgiveness of sin. And so Jesus dismisses their question as illegitimate. It is misguided. They're looking for the second coming when his first coming has huge implications for them. And they should see the signs that the king is in their midst because Christ comes wielding the authority of the king. And so for those that were given eyes to see, they could could see who Christ was. And they could see the kingdom of God, even if, as we saw in the parable of the mustard seed, even if it looked like a mustard seed even if it looks small and nondescript, One day it becomes a fully grown tree. So we might say the mystery of the kingdom is that it has come and it it is coming. It is the division of the coming of the kingdom into the first and second coming of Jesus. The, The Pharisees were blind. They were not able to see it. But that still leaves the question, what about the overthrowing of the enemies? What about the vindication of God's people? What about total victory? What about the sun being turned out and the blasting of the trumpet and the conquering Christ's arrival and the nations bowing down to Jesus? What about, what about that? Well, we said that though the kingdom begins like a mustard seed, it, it, it is eventually a fully grown tree. In other words, though it is hidden from many eyes now, it will eventually be obvious to all that Christ will visibly rule over all the world. That's point number two this morning. The kingdom is consummated in the second coming of Christ. Look there in verse 22. And he said to the disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in His day. So Jesus turns to His disciples and He begins addressing them. And it's interesting that although Jesus is in the midst of them, He already has taught them to pray for the coming of the kingdom even though he said the kingdom is in your midst. So he turns his attention with his disciples then to the, what we might call the consummation of this kingdom, the, the, the fully arrived, visible rule of Christ. The full arrival of all the kingdom promises contained in the Old and New Testaments. And Jesus says, you're going you're to long for this day. But he tells the disciples they're, they're not going to see it. Jesus, I believe, teaches us here that there will be this intervening period of time between His first coming and His second coming, between the inauguration of the kingdom and the consummation of the kingdom. And He sets out to give these disciples realistic expectations. And in doing so, He explains for us what the arrival of the kingdom will be like. He says, you'll desire that day. You'll desire that day, but you won't. See it. You know, following the resurrection of Jesus, you find this desire in the disciples. They were already asking after his resurrection, Is now the time? Is now the time, Jesus, that you've come to establish the kingdom? And of course, Jesus' answer to them in Acts chapter 1 is that it's not for them to know the times and seasons that the Father has fixed or decreed by his own authority. So he tells them here that, that you'll long for this day, but for those disciples, they will not see it. Now the days of, of the Son of Man are, are those days surrounding the return of Christ and the establishment of His rule on earth. We've talked about this title, Son of Man. And it goes back to the book of, of Daniel. So the days of the Son of Man are referenced for us in Daniel 7, 13 and 14. And behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given all dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So This is the son of man who will have all dominion and authority and power Yet these disciples will long for the days of the Son of Man, but they won't see it. They will see trials, tribulation, persecution, sin, their own sin, the sin of the world, injustice, blasphemy. They'll have this desire to be with them yet they won't see this fulfillment of this return. And so we face some of those same realities as the disciples did. Some of the things we just mentioned, we face them with varying degrees of intensity, persecution, suffering, our own sin, sin of the world. We wrestle with those. And those things conspire, as they did in the disciples, to create a longing for the return of Jesus, when he will set everything straight. So one of the questions, do you, do you long for the return of Christ? Do you long for the return of Christ? You know, to be perfectly honest, I used to be scared of it. I wasn't sure where I, I actually stood with Jesus. You know, and I, I played basketball in college, and I didn't play at the sort of college where you could fly to games, you know, so we're on these... Um, long bus rides and I'd be staring out the window and looking up in the clouds and I'd think to myself you know what would happen if Jesus came back and to be honest I don't I don't think that any result would have surprised me if at the end I would have heard well done thou good and faithful servant I would have said yeah I, I wonder I thought I was trusting in Jesus I guess I truly was Or if at the end I would have heard, depart from me, you worker of iniquity, I never knew you. I probably would have said, yeah, I guess I was a fraud, wasn't I? Neither outcome would have been a real shock to me. And part of the problem was I was thinking about my salvation in terms of me and my own ability to sort of conjure up enough earnestness enough faith to gain entrance into the kingdom of God. And it really wasn't until I became confident, not in myself and the strength of my own faith, but confident in the gospel itself, that I was truly able for the first time not to be scared of the return of Christ, but to long for the return of Christ. It was Romans 8 that drew my eyes away from myself. and It's not about you, it's about what Christ has done. It's about the work of Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. God did what the law could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh. It was the gospel itself that caused me to long for the return of Jesus. So if that day scares you, consider Christ. Consider Christ. You know, I just shared my own story so I feel like I can say this. Stop trying to make it about your ability and the strength of your faith. Turn to the gospel of Christ. And if you're outside of Christ, the, the, the scary reality is for those of us who are outside of Christ, we ought to be worried about that day. And we'll see that in a minute. You know, the disciples long for this day, the days of the Son of Man, they will not see it. All the faithful Christians that have gone before us long for this day, and they've yet to see it. We've lived this long on this earth. For some of you, it's 80 years. For some of you, it's five years. We've lived this long, and we've yet to see it. So Jesus then transitions sort of this question. Is it possible that the kingdom came and we didn't notice? Is it possible that the days of the Son of Man have happened and we missed it? He says, oh, oh no. These, the coming of the Son of Man, the days of the Son of Man will be visible to all. We read that in verse 23. Look, and they will say to you, look there or look here. Do not go out or follow them. Don't don't listen to those guys who said the kingdom has come. You just missed it. You need to go over here, and then you'll be able to see it. His first coming was the mustard seed. That was the quiet one. He was born, again, in a nondescript town, announced to his parents and his shepherds. Very few were aware of his birth. His second coming could not be much different. Jesus says like a a flash of lightning can light up the whole sky. It'll be that obvious. His return will be sudden, it will be visible, and it will be unmistakable. Jesus warns his disciples, and by virtue of our union with Christ, we we can think about this for ourselves too. But don't believe those who claim that Jesus has come back. You just haven't found him yet you know, the most recognizable names in our our country's history that have sort of taken on this claim that they are the second coming of Jesus. You may be able to throw out a few names, but Jim Jones and David Koresh come to mind for me. And unlike Jesus, both of these men were evil, and they used their religious con to serve themselves, build a following, and take advantage of people. Not surprisingly, these men didn't come uh, not to be served, but to serve and to give their life a ransom for many like Jesus. They were fulfilling the lust of the flesh in the name of religion. They were taking advantage of pe- people. Both ended in hor- horrific loss of life. Over 900 people committed suicide in light of their commitment to somebody like Jim Jones. And some people would say, here's why I go there. Not because I think you guys care about Jim Jones, but here's why I go here. Some people would say, oh, religion is to blame. See what happens with religion? People take advantage of others. They get them to do really crazy things. Religion is, therefore, necessarily to blame for this. Specifically, Christianity is bad because look at the way that somebody like Jim Jones or David Koresh or someone else manipulates the Bible in order to serve themselves. So the Bible, therefore, is is bad. But if you think about these two cases that we just mentioned, the answer isn't actually less Bible. The answer isn't the Bible's bad. The, the, The reality is they didn't know the Bible. So when some crazy, evil, wicked man says, I'm Jesus, they say, oh, he must be Jesus. If they knew the Bible, if they would hear the words of Jesus, then they would be steeled from this false teacher who led them to their own destruction. It's not that we need less of God's word, it's that we need to know God's word and understand the teaching of Jesus in order to steel ourselves against, S-T-E-E-L, steel ourselves against false teaching. If they had known Jesus' words, they would have recognized these men as frauds. And when Jesus comes back, nobody's going to have to say like, hey, there's a group down there in South America. They say they found Jesus. Nobody's going to have to ask that, Jesus says. Revelation 1.7 says it this way, Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him. There will be no question There will be no question on anyone's mind when Jesus comes back. It will be visible, it will be unmistakable, and our text says it will be sudden. Look at verses 26 through 28. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and, and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. Jesus says this day will be sudden like, like the days of Noah. You know, I wouldn't recommend watching that movie starring Russell Crowe about Noah. You know, not surprisingly, they missed the real reason for the flood, but one thing they captured is the the horror of that water rushing in and overtaking them and the suddenness of the destruction. Similarly, Sodom was destroyed in an instant. Fire and sulfur rained down the text, said so the, the the point in mentioning these things, that this judgment that will accompany the return of Jesus, it comes so suddenly that there is no time at that point to prepare. That this judgment falls unexpectedly on an unprepared people. You see in verse 27 what the people were doing. They were eating and drinking and being married and given in marriage and planting and building. What's Jesus warning against? He's warning against living as if we're guaranteed that tomorrow will be like today and yesterday. People will be living as if there is no day like the one that's described in this text. Or living like there is no Son of Man who is returning. Many will be conducting their lives like there's nothing coming down the pike. They will be un. Concerned for Christ, and therefore unprepared for His return. That's why we insist on preaching Christ. We insist on preaching Christ. I try to avoid a lot of applications that would say, oh, look at those churches, so I'm not trying to do that, but I am saying when you look at the list of what people will be doing, marrying, giving, a marriage, you know, marriage is a great thing, but a, a lot of preaching is just, hey, here's seven tips to have a better marriage. Here's seven tips to have a better business. And Jesus says, those people who are only concerned about this life, they're in danger. So we preach Christ. He is the end goal of all history, he is the one that we must organize our life around both individually and corporately. And so the warning is don't be caught so focused on this world that you're unprepared for the return of Christ. Don't go on living as if tomorrow is guaranteed to be just like yesterday. Because when the, in the days of the Son of Man, these are times of judgments. Look there in verse 30. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. So Jesus is saying that the days of Noah, when a flood came and destroyed the world, or the days of Sodom, when in a moment they're consumed, these, in a sense, are just a forerunner to the coming of Christ. The flood water sweeping in, the fire and sulfur raining down are mere glimpses of God's judgment on the world. Look at verse 37. And the disciples said to him, Where, Lord? He said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. What a vivid picture of the holy and righteous wrath of God. Vultures gathering around to feast on those who have been slain. You see, the disciples, they actually misunderstand the universality of of the coming judgment, of this return of Christ. They ask, where? They miss that that it's going to be visible to all people. Where will this happen? And Jesus says, where you see the vultures circling, you will know that the judgment of God has fallen Again, Jesus teaches the disciples here that this will be a a, a day of visible judgment, universal judgment, and permanent judgment. Once it is delivered, it is final. Stop asking where, because the answer is everywhere. But this end, this end, the, the hope of the text is that this end is not experienced by all. There's a separation between the righteous and the wicked. Look there in verses 34 and 35. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken, the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken, and the other left. The picture is the separation between the righteous and the wicked. And this is a theme that runs throughout all of the Bible. Dan read Psalm 1 last week. The righteous can stand. The unrighteous will not stand in the light of judgment. If you read the the end of the book of Revelation, the righteous are in the kingdom. They're inside. The unrighteous are outside the gates. So the hope in this passage is that the righteous will not endure the time of judgment and wrath. The question remains, though, as as we think about this text, who are the ones who are taken? Right, Because, and I'm sure if we pulled everybody, it would be a lot of different opinions. Who are the ones who are taken? It could be, well, the, the unrighteous are taken to judgment, or it could be that the righteous are taken and spared from the judgments. Now, it seems to me, based on the context, that the ones who are taken are the righteous. Ultimately, again, we can come together on the backside of this passage and agree, because the main point is that the righteous and the wicked will be separated. But it seems to me, again, based on the context, that the righteous are the ones who are taken. It was Noah and Lot who Lot was taken outside the city and spared. Noah was taken into the ark and spared. Verse 37 seems to imply that the ones who are left are the ones who are consumed by the vultures there to devour them. So I would argue that Jesus is, is pointing to this blessed hope that we have that believers are spared from the day of wrath. Believers are spared from the day of God's wrath. It reminds us of First Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. We will always be with the Lord. Why? Why the, the, the catching up in First Thessalonians 4? Well, 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 says, For God has not destined us for wrath. We don't endure the day of wrath, of of judgment, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So as we attempt to wrap our minds around this, notice a couple things. I already mentioned this earlier. It doesn't say we're spared suffering. It doesn't say we're spared persecution. It doesn't say we're spared hardship on this earth. So as you anticipate this day, make sure that your focus isn't misplaced. You know, sometimes we might be longing for the Lord's return so that we don't have to deal with traffic today or hard neighbors. That's not it. That's not it. You will have tribulation. We should be mindful of the way that we preach Christ. It's easy to sort of hold out the benefits of of Christ. Oh, don't you don't you want to have a time where there is no sickness or cancer or suffering? Well, just believe in Jesus and you get this. That's why we say we got to preach Christ. We got to preach Him. It's perfectly possible for someone to idolize something like health and say, "Oh, Jesus will give me health." Okay, I'll come to. Je-. Well, they haven't changed their heart. They just think Jesus has come to give them what they. So let's make sure our hope isn't actually misplaced. What's the hope? We will always be with the Lord. (laughs) Jeff was in this text not too long ago in Bible Hour. We, We are called to comfort and encourage one another with these words. We aren't spared those sorts of things in this life. The ultimate hope of Christ's return is that we get to be with Christ. And then notice what that's meant to do for us. Encourage one another with these words. What words? If you're to be in First Thessalonians four, what words? That we will always be with the Lord, and that we have been spared from the day of wrath, and set apart for salvation. And I know that the, these sort of topics they create all kinds of fun discussion. And I hope that, 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 that the main flavor of our discussion, our conversation, would not be argumentative, but that would be encouraging one another. <laughs> that, that we will always be with him. Encourage one another with these words. Okay. So don't fall then into, here's, here's another application. We'll hit a couple more verses, then we'll wrap up. Don't fall into the assumption, for the believer, don't fall into the assumption that all God's gifts are present now. We still await this glorious future. There are blessings reserved for those who are in Christ. But also, the warning then is don't, don't assume the opposite either. Don't assume that the present expression of suffering in this world is the worst sort of suffering that exists. Instead, turn to Christ. Because how you relate to Christ determines how you experience that day. It's either one of glad reception and fulfilled expectation as we see what the Bible calls the glorious appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Or as we've highlighted from the text, it's a swift time of judgment of which the flood and Sodom and Gomorrah were just a mere foretaste. So what do we do? right? This sermon is, is titled, Living in Light of the Kingdom. Now I'm not good at sermon titles. I don't really care that much about sermon titles, but we should consider what it means to live in light of this. What does it mean to live in light of the the fact that Christ has come and He's coming again? The present reality in which we exist and the impending consummation of this kingdom. Well, I think in verses 31 through 33, it's a call to persevere. A call to persevere. On that day... Let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. So what does Jesus urge from those who will listen? Well, it's not cling to this life. It's not cling to the things of this world. There will be those uh, on this day in verse 31 who on the brink of judgment, all they can think about is the goods inside their house. I've got to go get that. Jesus says, Don't turn for that. Don't turn back for that. Now, I don't think Jesus is saying, oh, you know what? If you don't turn and you run fast enough, you can escape the judgment of God. It's not that. It's a picture of letting go of the things of this world. He who loses his life will save it. That's why he says in verse 32, to remember Lot's wife. She turned back, and she's used as a negative example of longing or clinging to possessions and not fleeing to safety. Fleeing to refuge. I think for those of us in Christ this morning, it means this, that unlike those who have no concern for the coming return of Christ, no concern for the Lord's kingdom, we must live differently in light of the hope that we have in Christ. Paradoxically, we give up our life in order to gain it. It's a call to remain faithful, to persevere in Christ, to give your time, energy, effort entire self to God and remain faithful until he comes remember the parable of the soils it's it's the affairs of this world that threaten to choke out your faith so cling to Christ cling to Christ and not to this world press on press on give your energy and service to our king Jesus Christ seek first the kingdom of God Well, there's one last aspect of the consummation of Christ's kingdom that we we must deal with, and it came there at the end of verse 25. Well, not at the end, but it says, But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Again, this is one of the things the Pharisees missed when they asked about the kingdom. They did not understand that God works in ways that we don't that we don't grasp or understand. They miss that in God's agenda for the world, the glory of Christ, the ascension of Christ, the second coming of Christ, would all be preceded by the death of Christ. The suffering of the King precedes the rule of the King. But in God's wisdom that again supersedes ours, our hope is in that King and in His death. And as I was thinking about this, I thought, man, what king dies on behalf of the people? David didn't. He sent a man to go die in war. What king dies on behalf of his people? Well, if we want to borrow language from Paul in Romans, maybe there's a king that would lay down his life for, for those who love him and those who serve him. But Jesus goes even beyond that, and we might ask, what kind of king dies for his Enemies, for while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. See, um, on those long bus rides as I was fearful, that's what I needed to understand. That the king has laid down his life. I needed to fully grasp that Jesus' death is what guarantees my future. His resurrection is what secures me. And in light of that, I can long for the day that I see Jesus face to face. And it's in light of the gospel, we might echo John's words at the end of Revelation. And Gary even prayed these this morning. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. God, we do pray that this day would hasten itself And we pray that in the meantime, we'd be faithful to proclaim Christ, to cling to Christ, and to find our hope and courage in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.